0: So our next session will be with Peggy Plunkett. She's a clinical nurse specialist here at Hitchcock. She's a psychiatric liaison nurse. Um, She'll be going over the three Ds of depression, delirium, and dementia. And um, this session we are recording to offer um, as a podcast. So just an FYI that this this session will be recorded um, and available to the public. So don't say anything. <laughs> don't <sit right> <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being me Do you need any help? Um. Oh, so I guess I just plug it in and then do yeah. that. Right here and here. If you need power, okay. just in case. I don't want to have it die it's halfway through. Okay.
1: So was Justin's. Yeah. So yeah. it's my back,
0: right? Oh, it's just audio. So oh, good. Perfect. Play- Perfect. Yeah. Perfect.
1: Perfect. Sitting at least then you can hopefully see over me to the slides. Mm-hmm. All right. So thank you for the um, intro. So um, I have worked with. Uh, I work mostly with inpatients, although uh, I certainly talk to a lot of colleagues in other settings. So, I'm just curious how many of you are working in an inpatient setting, acute inpatient? How many of you are working in um, ambulatory care, clinics? How many in long term care? How about home health? Okay, what am I missing? Academia. Oh, perfect. Parish mm-hmm. yeah, nursing. Sure. Great. great, great. All right, all right. So, um, I'm going to be talking about depression, delirium, and dementia because there's a lot of overlap. And so this is going to be sort of the 30,000 mile view of this concept. But it's really, really important in our older adults because we often go down the wrong path in thinking about what the person's problem is. And that leads sometimes to complications that if we had the right diagnosis, we would do better at. So that's what we're going to be talking about. So basically, I'm going to be talking about symptoms and treatment strategies for depression and assessment and treatment for delirium and dementia. So I want to really emphasize that we don't lose our concern about mental disorders once people get older. So the prevalence of mental disorders in people who are over 65, as you can see, when you add both psychiatric and dementia disorders, it attributes 26.3% of people over 65 will have either a psychiatric a dementia problem. So it's huge. And you might not think of dementia as being a psychiatric problem. Um, Sometimes in psychiatry we wish wish people did not think of that as a psychiatric problem because it's really a medical, neurological problem. But um, in this instance it is lumped together. So if you think about it, a quarter of the people over 65 will have some kind of a mental disorder. And then this, I always think, is um, striking for people who work in the non-psychiatric fields and globally the worldwide causes of disability by and large, the largest causes of disability are mental illness and alcohol and drug use disorders, not the physical disorders like diabetes, heart disease, um, all those other things you think about. The third leading cause of disability worldwide <coughs> is Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. So when you think about our older population and you think about the kind of illnesses and um, disorders they have, you can imagine why their disability quotient just creeps up and creeps up as they get older. So I'm going to talk about depression first. And this um, just emphasizes that as we accumulate more chronic illnesses, our chance for having depression goes up. So in the general adult population, it's like 6% prevalence, and then when you get into hospitalized people, it gets up to third, a yeah, third, and when you get into cancer patients, it goes up almost to 50%, stroke patients is certainly 50%, and then Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease is somewhere between a third and half of people with Parkinson's disease will suffer from depression. So these are disorders of the elderly, and so you have to think about that when you look at your elderly people who have these disorders and also think, might they have a component of depression? So the risk factors for a first episode of depression in older adults. um, Women still are high uh, on the list. Social isolation, which certainly in our rural population we think about that a lot. It's very different in um, large cities. They have different kind of isolation, but we have physical isolation that is huge. Um, people who are widowed, divorced, or separated, in that they are more isolated. Lower socioeconomic status, other medical conditions, pain, insomnia, functional cognitive impairment, and finally, of course, substance abuse and misuse, which we can't ignore <coughs> in our older population. It's often a silent issue, and sometimes we don't even think about asking them. But it certainly affects depression. Anything here surprising to you? No, I suspect not. Um, So I'm going to talk about the way we diagnose um, depression in psychiatry, uh, just so you have a sense if your clinicians are using these terms. So our current uh, terminology comes from the DSM-5. You might be more familiar with people talking about the DSM-4, which was our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Psychiatric Disorders up until last year, and then the DSM-5 came out. So there's four categories in the DSM-5. One is minor depression, which is a new concept in that it doesn't meet full criteria for a major depression, but it has um, components of that, and I think a lot of our elders suffer from minor depression. So minor depression is depression, depressive episode with less number of symptoms that they wouldn't qualify for one of the other disorders, and it's typically of a short duration then the next one is persistent depressive disorder. So that's people who, if you talk to them, they're kind of the glass half empty people versus the glass half full people for their whole life. So they've always kind of looked at the world in a a kind of a sad way.
0: Mm -hmm. What would you consider like a short duration?
1: So short duration, um, well, in order to get criteria for major depressive disorder, which is the third one, you have to have the symptoms for at least two weeks. So I'm assuming this is less than two weeks. Um, so these are more what we might think about as the reactive, situational, those kind of things. You yeah, I was going to say, like related to loss of a spouse or sure. that kind of thing would be the minor as opposed to mm-hmm. the assistant. Typically, typically. And you also have to think about loss of a spouse in terms of what sort of expected, normal, time-limited people pull themselves up by the bootstraps and keep going versus the people where it takes on a life of its own. And that's often how I describe it to patients, as a difference between, I talk about depression as having depression with a little d and depression with a big d. And depression with a little d is in our common, ordinary conversation. And we talk all the time about, I'm kind of feeling down today, I've kind of had a sad day, I'm a little blue. Whereas depression with a big d is what we in psychiatry might think about suggesting treatment for. Um, So then major depressive disorder and bipolar disorder which does continue on into later life. So making the diagnosis, the three components for depression, and I'm gonna go through them um, in more detail, are anhedonia, psychological symptoms, and physical or what we call somatic symptoms. So anhedonia, basically it's global loss of interest or pleasure in things that you normally enjoy. And we talk to people about Um, more than half the day, more than half the days. So it's really global, it's not just, oh, I don't feel like doing that this afternoon. It's, I don't feel like doing that at all. And this might be the most important and useful symptom, particularly for elders. Now the trick is, and you might be thinking this, what, what do you think is a confounding issue for older people?
0: They're slowing down in their activities.
1: They're slowing down in their activities, and why do they slow down in their activities? Pardon? Physiologically slowing down. Illness. They can't do it. My mother was a big quilter um, and then, you know, her hands just got to the point where she didn't have the strength to do that anymore. People are big knitters all their lives and all of a sudden when they're older they can't do that. So I sometimes say to people, because I work with the medically ill population all the time, so I will ask them, If you were physically able to do that activity you used to do, would you be able to enjoy it today? And they can often tell me, oh, yeah, if I could do it, if I could go on that ski slope and go down, you know, Cannon Mountain, whatever, I would be totally jazzed. Or they'd say, no, I'm not even, I don't think I even have the interest to do that. So that's one way you can kind of parse that out. But it is tricky when you have people who have physical limitations. You sometimes have to be very creative and sometimes I've gone to the point of just thinking about do they even get interested in their visitors? Now that's somewhat pejorative and then I'm assuming they would be interested in their visitors, but um, sometimes that's the best I can do. Then the other um, psychological symptoms, obviously decreased mood, being sad, crying, feeling down. Sometimes people talk about feeling empty or hopeless having less self-esteem or incredible guilt feeling worthless and there's a real cognitive impairment that comes along with depression and this is often the overlap with delirium and dementia that you have to think about Um, so this inability to think concentrate or indecisiveness so I have seen people who I had a friend whose um, husband was severely depressed and needed to be admitted he could not make the decision to be he could not make the decision. You could pay him a million dollars and he could not make the decision to be admitted. He just was so indecisive about making any decisions. That's the kind of indecisiveness I'm talking about. Not just, well, I don't know if I want to do it or not, but this sort of cognitive inability. Now, one of the things that I see as different from dementia patients or patients with delirium is these people feel like they could do it if they wanted to do it. So it's almost like a motivational, you know, I don't just have the energy or the inclination to do it, rather than I don't have the brain power to do it. And there's sort of a, it's a subjective difference, but you can often sort of sense that with people who are depressed. Um, And obviously suicidal ideation or persistent thoughts of death. Um, And I want to say when I go back to this about self-esteem or guilt. so a lot of older people feel guilty about the burden they're placing on their families right okay. um, what kind of burdens have you guys heard from your patient population what do people talk about
0: personal care
1: personal care people helping them with personal care financial financial people worry a lot about finances burdening their families not being able to inha- get an inheritance to the next generation yeah, so we have to think about it in terms of what's sort of an average, normal, older person's values around that versus is this person way over the top? And sometimes you'll hear it from the families and that, you know, I've tried to tell dad, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. It doesn't bother me. And he can't get past it. So that sometimes is what we have to do to sort out. Is this normal aging or is this depression? Physical symptoms, not being able to sleep, weight change. Now, I will say some people sleep more when they're depressed, but um, we often think of just insomnia. Um, Weight change, loss of energy or fatigue, again, sometimes difficult to assess in older population, um, and then being either very slowed down in your motor movements or agitated or restless Any questions about the physical symptoms? Again, sometimes tricky to do for people who have other medical problems um, or chronic conditions. So some people will debate that in medically ill people, and I would argue for some elder people they, would, they might have be medically ill as well, that you don't really evaluate the physical symptoms as highly as you evaluate the psychological symptoms for depression. But some people say, you know, let's just take them all and decide if the person meets criteria. And to think about suicidality in older people, again, it's important to think about as we get older. So my parents are um, 95, they're almost 96, um, and I just visited them. They live in Texas in a retirement community, and they live in an independent apartment. And they're functioning because there's two people together. My father has more of the brain power, so he's helping that part. And they both say, you know, we're ready to go. We're ready to go. You know? My father said to me, you know, it's kind of boring. You know, I get up, I read the paper, I go to breakfast, I go back, I read the paper some more, I go to lunch, oh, and then he takes a nap, then he goes to lunch, you know, I mean, his day is kind of boring. This is a man who's traveled the world, was a professor of engineering, you know, very much intellectually aware, and he says, you know, life is kind of boring, and, you know, I'm ready to go when it happens. Of course, their goal is, you know, what do you think? Well, no, but actually, I, you know, the funny thing is, my brother said, I couldn't believe it, because my father said, you know, I think we might make it to 100, and I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, I think the thing that's amazing is this issue about, uh, you know, they both, of course, want to, you know, die in their sleep together. Yeah. You know, no. they're both going to go to bed one night and oh. not wake up.
0: Well, mm-hmm. i, I waited in my past. My parents had really good friends who actually did a double suicide. Yes. Yes. And, you know, that hit me when you said they want to die together. These right. people actually right. did die together. So that's
1: the big distinction. So, suicidality in older adults is something we can't ignore because it's normal to be ready or accepting of death due to their distance burden, but it's not considered normal to have suicidal thoughts, plans, and intent. So that, thank you very much, that is exactly the distinction we have to make and that is exactly what sometimes people are faced with because of either depression, declining health, financial burden, um, not wanting to go into an um, institution, all sorts of reasons why people might consider suicide. So the statistics are kind of powerful about suicide in older adults and you talk about one area, so males 85 years and older are the highest suicide rate of any age group. Higher than teenagers, higher than middle-aged women, they are four times the national average. Now what's interesting to me is I wonder if that's going to be generational because certainly looking at everybody else that's in this retirement community with my parents, you know, so all these 85 plus year old people, and in um, you know, watching the men, that generation is plus minus sort of uh, physically and socially helpless when their mate dies. Um, I don't think that's true of the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. So I wonder, as the next generation's age, whether this will continue to be so high. But I think these guys um, are at a loss. Um, men uh, are a higher rate in older adults than women uh, and whites are higher rate than African-Americans. That's true throughout the ages. Peak suicide rates, so the suicide rate goes up uh, continuously for men through the aging process and it peaks, the rate peaks at mid-life for women and then it slightly declines. Now this is an incredible statistic in the people who have committed suicide of older men saw their primary care provider on the day that they committed suicide and still went home and committed suicide. 40% of older men saw the PCP on the week before they committed suicide. And 70% saw their PCP during the month before they committed suicide. So what they're making of these statistics is that these are lost opportunities. These were not topics of conversation during those PCPs. So it's just something to keep in mind that we always want to have it as part of the agenda when we're talking to older people.
0: Is there any statistic about um, presenting to the emergency department for um, acute illness or whatever it is? Did they look at that one too, the, for that population? You mean how presenting for an acute
1: illness correlates with Suicide. Well, it is a risk factor in terms of not uh, presenting to emergency departments, but just comorbid medical conditions. And certainly having a new diagnosis of a more debilitating illness, particularly in in an elder population who already has many (coughs) functional burdens, um, is huge on the list of that. So one of the um, sort of, I hate to say, poster children for um, older suicides is Ernest Hemingway. So, um, he, you know, certainly suffered from substance abuse. Uh, He was having chronic uh, health problems. He was going blind and uh, he was older and he committed suicide. He also had a family history of suicide, too, so he had lots uh, against him in that regard. But he had the classic issues of a male, you know, decreasing abilities, Um, you know, getting older, having less functionality, knowing this wasn't going to get better. Because typically the chronic conditions that elders have don't
0: necessarily get better. They just have to adjust. What What about patients who cognitively are okay and just decide to stop?
1: So there is, um, ethically speaking, there is an ability for people at end of life to choose to stop eating. And I know in many long-term care facilities, that's becoming more and more of an issue. I know at Kendall, they're discussing it. Um, The population there is discussing it quite a bit. So it certainly is um, something that is to be considered. And you have to look at the cognitive ability, the rationality of the decision, the comorbid medical conditions, you know, those things to decide whether that's something. So in psychiatry, we certainly would look at that because obviously this bit about um, what is normal, thinking about end of life, and what is something we would jump in and treat. And as you know, in Vermont, there is physician-assisted dying. We don't have it in New Hampshire, but it is in Vermont. And I understand Canada is looking at it for the entire provinces. Um, So, suicide risk factors in the elderly, depression, hopelessness, medical illness, as you discussed, um, living alone, recent bereavement, divorce or separation, unemployment or retirement, those are high times of um, concern, and then substance abuse just makes everything worse. And to remember, substance abuse isn't just the um, use of illicit drugs or use of alcohol, it can be medication misuse. So, a lot of our elders misuse their medication. And sometimes it's on purpose and sometimes it's not on purpose, and you have to sort that out. But if you look at all these risk factors, you can imagine how many of the people you care for have these risk factors. Um, Now, some people like these sort of mnemonic things. So this is what um, the psychiatry residents are taught to diagnose depression. So these will just include all of the symptoms of depression, and they call it CAPS: S-I-G-E-C-A-P-S. And S is for sleep disturbance. I is for interest, which is the anhedonia or loss of interest. G is for guilt. E is for energy fatigue. Uh, C is for concentration. A is for appetite changes and weight loss. Uh, P is for psychomotor changes, those people who are um, curled up in a ball in bed or running around the unit. Um, And then S is for suicide. So those are just to remind you, if you like those, to remind you of all the symptoms. And then there's some um, screening and monitoring um, options that you have. So one is a two-question screen, one is the Savage geriatric depression screen, and one is the Cornell screen for depression and dementia, which, as you can imagine, is a little bit trickier when you have somebody with cognitive impairment. So the two-question screen, which if you've gone to your primary care provider here, you've been asked this, and you might not have even realized it. So the two-question screen, the first question is, during the past month, have you been bothered by feeling down, depressed, or hopeless? And the second one is, during the past month, have you been bothered by little interest or pleasure in doing things? And basically, it identifies patients at risk if both questions are answered yes, and certainly if any question is answered no, it begs further questioning doesn't diagnose depression, but it certainly will help you to screen people quite quickly. Have you been using these in the settings you're in? It's very popular. Yes. Then this is the geriatric depression scale, and this is one where they would check off are you basically satisfied with your life, have you dropped many of your activities and interests, do you feel that your life is empty, do you often get bored, and then it has a series down to 15 questions. And then um, depending on whether they say no or yes, um, some they, are, they have to answer no to score, some they have to answer yes to score, and then um, if it's more than five, it's a suggestion of depression and suggested further interview and evaluation, and then more than 10, almost always depression. So that's for older people. So that's something that you can just Google and find easily if you're interested in screening tools. And then the third one is this depression in dementia one, which is um, for, from Cornell and I think it's helpful because it's often so hard to tell with people who have cognitive impairment whether they also have depression. So this goes through um, having the rater, so you don't ask the person so much. You're rating them from an objective rater standpoint. Uh, their mood symptoms, their behavioral disturbance symptoms, physical signs, including appetite loss, weight loss, lack of energy. And then cyclic functions, because depression tends to be worse in the morning for people, um, and difficulty falling asleep, and then all sorts of sleep disturbances associated with depression. And then finally, um, ideational disturbance, which is kind of a fancy word for um, thinking about, are they suicidal? Do they have poor self-esteem? Are they pessimistic? Um, And do they have um, any delusions related sort of to um, mood-related delusions? and a score greater than 12 on this would be probable depression. Depression is not uncommon in people with dementia Um, and I don't know if you've seen that in the populations you've worked with. Have you seen people who you felt were depressed who also had dementia? Have you seen anybody who you felt that way that was actually treated for depression and did a little better cognitively? Because that's always the hope because as you know Mo- much of dementia is progressively worse, and there's not a lot of treatment for dementia, whereas there is treatment for depression. So, sometimes what people will do, at least uh, in the mild to moderate phases of dementia, will be if they see these symptoms to just um, empirically treat for depression and then see if they see any cognitive changes, hoping that maybe they can reverse some of the depression effects on the cognition.
0: <clears throat> So this is specifically for the dementia population. This is depression and dementia. Um, so it's more common to see weight loss in them. But with like the overall geriatric population, do the symptoms say weight gain is more common?
1: You mean for depression? Yeah. Oh no, no weight loss in. De- there are some people who, when they are depressed, gain weight. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are most many people who are depressed lose weight, okay. and in fact when you look at the non-geriatric literature they talk about a five percent increase or decrease in weight okay.
0: so okay so either or yeah okay
1: right. although i'm going to bet for the people who are demented i'm betting they're going to lose weight just because of the whole cognitive components right. of eating and so for treatment the non-pharmacologic treatments for depression as you know could include support groups Uh, Really important to involve in productive activities. Any of you on (coughs) long-term care know that there's a great emphasis of that in long-term care and community activities, senior centers, parish nursing, certainly, you're getting into that all the time. Um, Remaining physically active and exercise. There's tons of research on that being helpful. Um, and then individual psychotherapy. So of the types of psychotherapy, the typical ones we think of for our older population is cognitive behavioral therapy, and that's actually been the most studied in the older population, Um, problem-solving therapy, and then interpersonal therapy. So individual psychotherapy actually can be as effective as medication for mild to moderate major depression. So that's huge because you're not adding something with big side effects and they can get the same benefit. So individual psychotherapy can be helpful, it should always be offered, it could be along with medication, and it's particularly used in these sort of life-changing transitions that elders go through. So when they're moving into assisted living, when they're going from assisted living to the nursing home level, when they're leaving their home, when they're moving closer to a child, when they're getting retired, um, if somebody dies, so those kind of transitions, these are times when sort of talk therapy might be helpful. Have you seen very many elders taking advantage
0: of counseling? There aren't that many options. I don't have any options. It is hard. We have, we have a luxury in our clinic of having behavioral health. Good success with a couple. One woman who was dealing with exactly that, with changes. And her husband was really pretty ill, and, mm-hmm. and um, dealing with her reaction to that, and had uh, behavioral health person act with it. I think for a
1: lot of our current generation of elders, there's a great stigma about psychiatry, so they often will not engage in psychiatric treatment, even if there was psychiatric treatment available. So I think having a um, minister, pastor, priest is very important. Mm-hmm. Having anybody associated with the church, if, they're, if that's particularly something that they're engaged with. Um, certainly having social workers may be less threatening than a psychiatrist. Um, parish nurses, I think you probably do a lot of this. You probably evaluate for this all the time. So I think we sometimes have to be creative, but it doesn't really require necessarily a full-blown psychiatrist to provide this, and sometimes that's actually a barrier for people getting it. So we need to think about other ways to do it. Um, so medication treatment, basically the older medications, the older anti um, antidepressants are those tricyclics. Um, some of you may remember them. I remember when they were the only thing we had. Uh, the concern, so these are things like amitriptyline, nortriptyline, and imipramine, and desipramine were the names. And the concerns we had was that there was overdose issues. Um, so the problem is that these cause, they're proarrhythmic, so they cause cardiac arrhythmias. And um, can you imagine what the lethal dose of a an, uh, tricyclic antidepressant is compared to the daily dose? So how many times the daily dose would somebody have to take to be lethal? Ten times. Ten times. A 10-day supply is lethal. Mm-hmm. So we were really happy when the SSRIs came out in, <coughs> because here you're giving a whole population of patients who are potentially suicidal a lethal medication. So, um, but they're very good antidepressants, and for many people they really work well, but you have to be careful because you can't overdose. And they're very, they can be deliriogenic if if they're given in too high a dose too quickly. So it's the kind of thing where you have to start low and go slow in terms of increasing the dosage. So then in the 1980s, these um, SSRIs came in, which the first one was Prozac, fluoxetine, And that was a big shift in uh, prescribing. And I think that's when people got to be much more apt to diagnose and treat somebody with depression who had cardiac issues, who was older, who maybe was also demented and you didn't know how much of it was from their dementia because these were so much safer. So the overdose toxicity is much less. Um, In fact, it's very hard to kill yourself by overdosing on these medications alone. So we're um, really happy to see them come along. And there are medications like Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Celexa, and Lexapro. Mm-hmm. I see all of those SSRIs prescribed. And I wonder, is there like a, a scale of like, first, we're going to try this? and if that doesn't, like, Well, how does... yeah, good point, good point. So how do people decide? So we usually decide two ways. So in a normal population, um, we would say Uh, Is there anybody else in your family who's ever been depressed, and if so, did they take a medication, and which one? Because just like depression runs in families, response to the depression medication will run in families as well. That is common for people who have kind of the lifelong episodes of recurring depression, which is typically the way depression works, but for an elderly person who got their first episode of depression in their older years, that's less predictive. But if they've, had, if they've had pre-existing depression, you would definitely want to know what helped you in the past or what helped other family members. But if this was their first ever episode of depression, it's, it's less fruitful. Then the second thing we look at are the side effects. And sometimes we want the side effects. So if somebody's not sleeping and one of these medications is more sedating, we'll say, oh, OK, we'll give you two bangs for your buck, and we'll give you an antidepressant and a sleeping agent in one. So sometimes we go with that. Um, And sometimes we just try and avoid ones that have a potential for medication interactions. So Prozac lasts, how long after you stop taking your Prozac can they still detect you in your blood? Two
0: weeks.
1: Six weeks. So think about giving that to somebody who is taking 5 million other medications and has a million comorbid medical conditions, and it's going to be in their system for six weeks after you've discovered the side effects. So we tend not to use Prozac in our older population or our medically ill population unless they have demonstrated that they responded to it or somebody in their family did. Paxil as well has a fair amount of medication interactions, um, has the highest weight gain, which actually might be a good thing in, our, in the elderly population. So we typically use Zoloft, Celexa, or Lexapro because they tend to have less side effects. Now they've accumulated, as they've been out longer, they've accumulated more side effects. So, you know, these are all caveats, but um, we typically stay away from Prozac and Paxil just because they tend to have more of the side effect profile. So then there's the newer ones. So Effexor or Venlafaxine, Cymbalta or Duloxetine, which is often prescribed for um, pain. And those are called uh, SNRIs because they block both uh, serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake. And then finally, the sort of um, um, on their own class is uh, Remeron or Mirtazapine and then Welbutrin or Bupropion, which is often also given for people trying to stop smoking. Now, Remeron is, is actually quite uh, well tolerated in the elderly and um, tends to have less of sort of the nausea side effects and tends to be a little uh, sedating at bedtime, so sometimes we we preferentially will see a lot of remeron being used. I don't know if you're seeing it in your practices, but that's why you're seeing it. And not too many bad side effects. So the things to consider with pharmacotherapy is you really want to monitor the person every couple weeks for both side effects and their symptoms of depression. You don't just hand them a pill and say, we'll see you next year. Um, And then you assess the response to that medication every four to six weeks. So the positive response. So first you're pretty much looking at the negative responses, and then you're looking at longer term, are they actually getting any benefit from it? And then you have to realize that it may take up to four to six weeks, and maybe up to 16 weeks to show efficacy in the older population. So we really have to encourage them to complete the full trial of the medication before we say it didn't work. And we'll often hear people who say, you know, I tried this, that, and the other thing, and it didn't work. And when we ask them how long they took it, well, I took it for two days. (laughs) or I took it for a week, or I took it for two weeks. Well, unfortunately, they didn't really get a trial as to whether it was gonna work. Maybe they got a trial as to whether they were gonna have some side effect that they hated, and so we wouldn't use it again. But it doesn't tell us whether it would have been efficacious. And they have to take it every day. So if you have a patient who is not good about taking a medication every day, these meds they really have to take. That would be the one reason to think about using Prozac that it is so long-lasting in your system that if somebody forgets to take it or is not good about taking it every day, that might be one reason for taking it.
0: I wonder how many treatment theaters there are because um, often patients are admitted to the hospital and for whatever reason why they're admitted, um, there may be a a gap in them actually getting the medication Mm -hmm. because they're NPO for a couple days or they go to surgery or... Whatever, So whatever effect they might have had right. has been blunted. Right.
1: Yeah, all of the antidepressants are oral form only. We have no parental forms for antidepressants. Um, I keep telling the pharmacists, if you invent one, you're going to be a millionaire, because everybody in the ICU is going to be on this, whether they need it or not. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I totally agree. When people come into the hospital, psychiatric medications are often the first that get yanked off for various reasons, some prudent because they're MPO, and some not because people don't value them and think they're important. Um, so that often will interrupt somebody's some of these. And some of them have to be tapered, right, if you come off them? Yes, um, Prozac less so because it is so long-lasting. Paxil has the worst um, rebound phenomenon, if a withdrawal phenomenon, if you stop it precipitously. We didn't realize that for any of these. 30 years ago, but it's and it's not life-threatening, but it's an uncomfortable sensation. So so tapering off is important. Less so for Prozac, because it does stay in your system forever. And then ECT is something to think about, particularly for people who have not responded to medication, and for whom they have a life-threatening depression.
0: Peggy, can you say anything about, or do you, uh, TMS the, um... so the- So
1: that's a new thing, so transmagnetic stimulation is a new thing, and they're doing it here, and they're doing it at our Um, outpatient private practice in Hanover psychiatry, I noticed in the paper, Um, but anyway, it's a new sort of, uh, it's beyond kind of the experimental phase for uh, depression, but they're finding some good results from this external magnet being um, gotten close to the brain and it affects the electrical impulses. They're, They're assuming it's something similar in a more mild way, but may work as you give it over time to ECT. So ECT affects obviously the electrical stimulation in your brain and um, in a much more mild way these big, big magnets do as well. Obviously you couldn't do that if you had a pacemaker a defibrillator or all these things that my parents have, but um, for other people it could work. And then these are just general nursing interventions to think about, Um, you know, we've talked about really being alert to suicide risk. Um, looking at enhancing their physical, social, and um, activities support that's really important for people to be productive and not be bored, um, and all those things. So, here's a first case study. Mrs. G is a 75-year-old female living alone in her apartment in New York City. Her husband died suddenly two years ago of a heart attack. Their two children are alive and living out of state. Both of their sons maintain weekly phone contact and visit about once a year. She's been doing well until about six weeks ago when she fell and sustained bruises but didn't require a hospital visit. Since then, she has been preoccupied with her failing eyesight and decreased ambulation. She doesn't go shopping as often, stating she doesn't really enjoy going out anymore and feels very sad and teary. She says that her shopping needs are less since she's really not as hungry as she used to be. And besides, I'm just getting too old to cook for one person only. So, what risk factors might account for her symptoms of depression? Husband, age, husband gender. age, gender, living alone, her frailty, weight loss, frailty, weight loss
0: mm-hmm. eyesight loss. Mm-hmm.
1: Eyesight loss, mm-hmm. right. What are her depressive symptoms? Decrease much. Pardon? Decreased appetite. Decreased appetite. Lack of interest in things. Lack of interest. Very preoccupied with her health status and her decreased ambulation. Now you have to remember how much is that is expected or normal and how much is that is beyond. Very sad and teary, giving up things. She's not cooking anymore. She just doesn't have the enter- energy or interest. Yeah. And what might be some treatment strategies for her? <coughs>
0: some communal
1: living. Maybe a communal living. At least enhance her home care activities and people who can come, whether it's home health, whether it's a paid caregiver, whether it's a friendly visitor. She needs a nutrition consult.
0: Nutrition sure. consult? That, that of, electrolyte imbalance and micro and contributing to some of the other symptoms.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah, because she might have started okay, and then as she stopped eating, she that just might have compounded all the problems. Absolutely. Perfect. Great. So. I'm going to finish up with just quickly talking about delirium and dementia. And um, delirium is what we consider the reversible confusional state. So we hope that it will be a time-limited problem, although we're showing um, in the more, like, last 10 years that people with delirium can have it for months and even longer. So the distinction between dementia and delirium is getting a little blurred these days. But it's basically, by definition, considered a reversible con- Confusional state and dementia is considered an irreversible confusional state and the, the um, Characterization of delirium is acute onset disturbance of consciousness So people often are either very somnolent or very agitated and they can go back and forth at, during the day um, Just uh, impaired cognition again often have problems with short-term memory thinking and an identifiable underlying medical cause So whether it's medications Um, Sleep disturbance, electrolyte imbalance, all those things can cause delirium, whereas dementia is is an acquired impairment of mental function, um, and not because of an impaired level of arousal. So these are not people who are like somnolent um, or, you know, have some kind of disturbance of consciousness. And um, they have a compromise in at least three areas of mental activity. These are the definitional things. So delirium... Prevalence in our medical population is up to 14%, and in our surgical and ICU patients, up to maybe 60% of our elderly hospitalized patients. So it's huge, and you're seeing it all the time. You're nodding your head. It can linger for months in older patients, so well after they're discharged. And the mortality for somebody who's been delirious at one month after delirium is 14%. At six months, is 22%. And it's two times the mortality rate of patients without delirium. And it's really unclear whether it's the delirium itself and whatever that is triggering in the body, or whether it's the delirium is a symptom of really, really bad illness. So it's a little hard to tell, but it certainly is not a good thing. The risk factors for delirium are dementia, stroke, Parkinson's, sensory impairments, so all the things our older population have that we have to think about. Um, And then the precipitating factors that we might be able to mitigate are polypharmacy and toxicity from medications, and remember to ask about those over-the-counter medications because our population doesn't even think about them as medications, and herbal preparations as well because, again, they don't think of that as medications, Um, and then drugs of abuse or withdrawal states, infectious processes. Um, And the two typical ones that you have to think about in the elderly before you go anywhere else is urinary tract infection and pneumonia. So you just listen to their lungs and look at their urine. Um, And I know there's a whole um, strategy for how you decide about um, urinary tract infections, but I know one of the things that kicks it into a treatable illness is if the person is cognitively impaired as a result. And then metabolic derangements like sodium, potassium, and glucose. We certainly see a lot of older people who are on the edges of normal for sodium. And if they live there all the time, that's fine. What we tend to see is the confusion happens when they change. So if they're normally living in a low sodium and all of a sudden it drops down 10 points or or it goes up 10 points to the high normal range, sometimes you'll see a change in cognition. And then endocrine issues... Um, nutrition and dehydration. Dehydration is huge in our elderly population and is a real risk factor for um, delirium and then other things like hypoxia. How many people have COPD in the older population? How many people keep their external oxygen on? Um, And how many times do we see the delirium, you know, get much worse when they're yanking off those nasal prongs? And then pain, sleep deprivation. So these are some of the things we might be able to mitigate in terms of precipitating Um, This is an algorithm for what you do with somebody that you're thinking about with uh, delirium. And so um, you can certainly look at it in your uh, guide. It's from um, the DSM-IV, but also it's available and up-to-date. And it's just a nice thing to think about. Are we looking at all of these components of precipitating factors? So there's uh, several ways to assess for delirium. I'm going to start with the Sharon Inouye's CAM because this is really the best instrument to detect delirium. Um, So she asked the questions of, is there an acute onset and fluctuating course? Is there inattention? Is there disordered thinking? And is there altered level of consciousness? And the diagnosis is made when they have to have acute onset and or fluctuating course and inattention and then plus either disorganized thinking or altered level of consciousness. And it really does help to
0: clinch the diagnosis of delirium. And it's a pretty simple screen to do. Where do you, where do you put belligerent and violent on that scale?
1: Because that's what we're
0: seeing at the bedside, is the demented person who has acute delirium and now they're um, physically violent
1: and verbally right. abusive. So that is a component. That can be a component of delirium, but this screen doesn't include that. So it's nice because you can look at these other factors, and it helps you to clinch. Is this their dementia, or could this be a superimposed delirium on top of their dementia? This helps you to tease that out. And very few other tests do. So the mini mental state exam, you probably, the MMSE, the the folstein you've probably all heard about this. It's been around since 1975. These are the questions that are asked. It's a general sort of cognitive um, battery of tests. It it tests different things. It tests orientation, attention, recall, language. Um, So how many of you have used this or seen it being used? Okay, well... Um, oh, I guess I didn't say that. Well, the trick about this, and I might be saying it more when I talk about dementia, the trick about this is that it's actually copyrighted. And you're actually supposed to be charging every time you use it. So it's not a very good test to use for that purpose unless you want to be buying it. Um, and uh, the other piece is for delirium, this does not distinguish between delirium and dementia. So for the, so really the only one that helps to distinguish between delirium and dementia is the cancer. Um, dementia. So the most prevalent is Alzheimer's, at about 60 to 80 percent, and then the rest is between vascular dementia, Parkinson's dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies, and frontotemporal. The prevalence really climbs up with age. So it's five to seven, per, five to 10 um, percent of the population over age 65 have dementia, but 35 to 50 percent of the population over age 85 have mentioned, So it goes up dramatically in each decade of our older life. And the incidence of Alzheimer's is predicted to currently in 2012 it was 4 million and it's predicted to be 14 million by 2040. And that's not because it's contagious or we have more environmental toxins or whatever, it's, it's because of the aging population. It's because of all of us. So Alzheimer's dementia, which is a type of dementia, so people get confused all the time. The the global concept is dementia, and one type is Alzheimer's. So Alzheimer's dementia has progressive decline, and they may include problems with memory, executive function, personality change, functional impairment, behavior, sundowning, where they get worse at night, um, and finally speaking and swallowing. And that often will lead people to decide, we're not going to force feed this person, or are we going to force feed this person? So there's a whole ethical issue about what do we do at end of life with um, feeding people. But it's, a, it's an expected consequence of end stage Alzheimer's that people will have problems with both speaking and swallowing, which obviously affects their intake. And these are just pictures of the brain of somebody who's normal. On the right side, look at all that definition and all that detail. And then on the left side, Look at how all those ventricles have just shrunk down and all the um, fluid pockets have gone up. And then if, you, if you've probably heard about the plaques and tangles they talk about in Alzheimer's, and these are microscopic um, views of them. So for assessment, again, the mini-mental status exam, and it's uh, because it's been around forever, it's been studied in every population. And on average, it declines three points per year in those with Alzheimer's. So if you start, so normal is, a, so you score a potential of 30, normal is 23 to 30, and then with Alzheimer's, it declines three points per year. Um, but again, it's copyrighted, uh, but there's a comparable tool called the SLUMS, which is the St. Louis University Mental Status Exam, which is in the public domain. So we use that one, and we also use the MOCA, use which the is Mo- the Montreal um, Assessment of Cognitive Function. So this is the slums, and as you can see, I googled it and got it off the VA site, and as you know, um, things off the VA site are free and open for the public to use, so the slums is one that is used quite a lot in uh, geriatric practices, and the MOCA. And they're kind of similar. I mean, the, the mini mental status, the slums, the MOCA are all similar and have the same uh, good things and bad things. So again, none of them distinguish between dementia and dementia. Um, then there's clock drawing tests, where people actually are asked to draw a circle, put in the numbers for the clock, and then asked to draw like 10 to 2, which helps you to look at both sides of the clock. And there's a whole science and understanding of impairments that you can determine by how people draw these clocks. And then there's a, another exam called the mini-cog, or mini-cognitive test, and that includes a clock drawing component, with asking them to remember three words, and then you tell them three words, and then so many minutes later, you ask them to recall those. So that is scored that way. And then um, there is certainly much more extensive neuropsychiatric testing that are sometimes done in dementia clinics. Um, So basically, we want to treat the cognitive symptoms. Um, There's a couple kinds of medications they use. The cholinesterase inhibitors, which are ones like Aricept, Rivastigmine, and Galantamine. And then the NMDA receptor antagonist, which is nemenda, which is nemantine. And finally, you really want to treat stroke prevention. Because vascular dementia is so prevalent that you want to make sure the vasculature of the brain is in good shape. Um, And then the treatment of behavioral disturbances. So behavioral management is best. Ideally, you identify any preceding or triggering events. You meet the unmet needs, and you try and avoid the triggers that sounds very simple, it's a three-step process, it's very difficult to do, I appreciate that. And it's really hard to do in an acute care setting. You've taken the person out of the environment they know, you've put them in this very unfamiliar, unclear environment, and now you're expecting them to be cognitively perfect, you know, that's not gonna happen. So it's really hard, but those are the characteristics, and I know you in long-term care think about this all the time when you're care planning and then finally, if somebody is a grave danger of risk for danger to themselves or others, we sometimes give them antipsychotics. But it does increase the mortality risk for people who have dementia. And they need to have informed, they should, or their family should have informed consent for the use of antipsychotics because it does increase mortality for people who have dementia. And those are medications like Haldol, Zyprexa, serquel, For people who also have Parkinson's, we would probably go with Seroquel because it has less Parkinsonian side effects. These are not um, miracle workers; they're basically a way to sedate a person with the least bad side effects. So the other sedating agents, like benzodiazepines or other anesthetic agents, um, cause delirium. So you don't want to cause delirium on top of the dementia. So we're sort of stuck with these as. The least bad options. If somebody is so agitated that they're going to be hurtful,
0: What about something like Geodon, that seems to be thrown into the recipe when the Hal does seem to be working.
1: So Geodon is just another antipsychotic, so it has its pros
0: and cons in terms
1: of side effects. And again, we would look at side effect profile. It's just ty- typically we typically here use more Seroquel well and Halldo these days.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen stiff man syndrome with Zyprexa? I have. Well, there's side
1: effects with all of these. You can have um, NMS. You can have, you know, all sorts of things with these medications. So they all carry significant side effects, and they're not. But for people who are basically end stage with dementia, sometimes the families say, you know, in order to get them placed, in order to get them, um, you know, docile enough that they can enjoy life again, we'll try it. But they're no panacea. And they all carry incredible side effects. So, again, the behavioral treatments for dementia, really, really working on functional uh, performance. So, you know, at night, having a low lighting level, not having bright lights so hopefully they can get to sleep. Um, Music therapy, behavioral modification, frequent toileting. As we know, how many falls are related to people going to the bathroom? You know, nearly, you know, more than half are related to people trying to go to the bathroom. Um, and then certainly things like massage, pet therapy, oh my gosh, our patients in the hospital love when the people come with their pets. Um, occupational physical therapy, some people like that more than others. Um, reminiscence therapy, talking about the old days, talking about what life was like back then. Um, and then really being in a home-like setting and having a special elder care unit. We do not have a ACE nice unit here. We do not have a focused, environmentally appropriate elder care unit here. And it would make so many of our patient situations so much better. Um, And then help for the caregiver, especially for the person who's at home. It's an incredible burden for the caregiver. And How many times have we seen where the caregiver dies before the person with the problem? Because of the burden of that and the stress. Um, And then obviously education. So here's more specific things about Alzheimer care. Um, maintain a familiar, comfortable routine, slow down, speak clearly, make eye contact in their field of vision. These are people that are not going at the same pace that we're going at. So sometimes there's incredible latency of speech and of thought. And sometimes you'll realize they answered your question now that you asked five minutes ago. So you have to be really patient. And then look for symptoms of personal distress because sometimes they're having a physical problem that they can't tell you about. So here's our dementia case study, uh, Mrs. D is a 98 year old woman in a skilled nursing facility with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. She comes to the nursing station and appears very upset. She tells you that she is looking for her mother and asks you to help her, you start walking with her. How many of you encountered that? So 98, I'm thinking she's not going to find her mother. Um, so, what <laughs> strategies would be helping, helpful in assisting her? One, using reality orientation in the hope of reversing her cognitive loss. Two, telling her that her mother died a long time ago. Three, attempt to distract or redirect her into a pleasurable activity, such as eating or singing. And four, asking her to help you with a small task, and that later you will look for her mother together. So how many people think, one, reality orientation? How many people think, so why do you not think that? Just gonna agitate agitate her, you've seen that? Okay. You can't reverse the cognitive loss. Can't reverse the cognitive loss. She may be beyond the point of being reoriented. How about telling her that her mother died a long time ago? No. No. No Why was that not good?
0: She She doesn't she's gonna acutely grieve. She's
1: gonna acutely grieve. It's kind of like Groundhog's Day, you know, she's gonna, every day is gonna be, "Oh oh my gosh, my mother died, oh my gosh, my mother died, oh my gosh, my mother died. And then five minutes later, she may not remember it. So it's almost like just providing too much cruelty. How about attempting to distract or redirect her into a pleasurable activity such as eating or singing? Okay, a lot of nodding. How about asking her to help you with a small task and that later you will look for her mother together? Okay, so another distraction. So right, so using reality orientation, you were absolutely right, her cognitive cognitive decline is too severe for reality orientation it can work in mild cognitive impairment by the time you get into moderate or severe it's less useful and the same for delirium if somebody is totally out to lunch trying to remind them you're in the you know today is you know whatever day it is and whatever month and whatever year is meaningless to them. and telling her that her mother died a long time ago yeah correcting her delusion or her lack of memory is not going to be So, attempting to distract or redirect her, yep, that's great, and then distracting her with another small task and telling her, we'll deal with that later. Or even just saying, I'll help you later with that. Sometimes that is helpful. Now, just like with a child, sometimes people with dementia get focused on something and you cannot budge them. So sometimes you have to be very creative, but saying, let's go walk around, let's look out the window, maybe we'll see her. You know, you can have that as a reason for doing it, but hopefully you can distract her with the physical activity. And then this at the end is just um, a chart uh, comparing and contrasting the signs and symptoms of delirium, dementia, and depression so that you can see the overlaps and see the areas of distinction hopefully be able to remember the specifics that we talked about when you're thinking about boy this person has cognitive impairment I don't know if it's from depression or delirium or dementia and again because of the treatment differences I don't really care about a diagnosis unless it's going to guide me in treating so the treatment differences are different so anything here that looks surprising so in terms of attention Um, In delirium, that's a hallmark of delirium that people can't attend. You know, how many times, especially for those of us who work in the hospital, we've been desperately trying to do patient education and the person is totally delirious and it's like, we keep trying it, you know? It's kind of like the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, (laughs) expecting different results. So attention is a hall, lack of attention is a hallmark of delirium. In dementia, actually, it is often quite normal until the severe form of dementia. And then in depression, um, they, can have, they can have impairment, but again, it's more motivational. It's not like their brain can't do it. It's just like they, they don't give a you know what. You know, they just are not up to the task. Um, so it goes through in each of the categories of attention, orientation, memory, thinking, um, and then in, in hallucinations and delusions, like people have mentioned, so they're common in delirium. They're not so common in dementia um, except that people can have <coughs> those delusions like, my spouse is having an affair, I've lost all my money, people are stealing from me, people are in my house. Those are common delusions in um, dementia. And similarly to delirium, I think in, uh, it's, it's the way of the mind filling in the gaps for which it has no logical connections. So once we lose our ability to logically think through why have I misplaced my keys? You know, it's much easier to say you took them than to say I misplaced them. You know, and sometimes we may use that ourselves at home. Um, you know, unless you live alone, and then it's much harder to blame somebody else. It's the cat, it's the person who broke in. You know, and that, that's where these delusions come in. Um, but again, delusions are not consciously produced. Delusions, people aren't aware that they're making this up. They're not like, you know, it's not they made it up. Um, And then finally, the activity uh, changes, sleep-wake cycle, and then whether it's reversible or not. So this is a nice way to just quickly remember the distinctions between the three disorders. So any other questions? I know I went over a little bit. Mm -hmm. Peggy, I have a question about um, the contributing factors to depression that we've known
0: for a long time, illness, and loss, and all that kind of stuff. Has there been any work on, I've noticed in some people almost like a survivor guilt. They're healthy, and they're doing well, but their friends are dying, and they're you know, they're the last member of the family still alive, or they're the last member of their peer group, and they're sort of, everybody else is dying, why not me? Well,
1: I think that's an expected and situational issue with aging when you outlive all of your peers, and sometimes all of your family members. How many times have you had the 98-year-old woman who has had ten of her twelve children uh, predecease her right, and as we know to have a child die is just not uh, in our frame of consciousness that it is possible, so to have that happen ten times over to the poor woman would be pretty depressing, so I think for a lot of people, unless they can replace that with something else, and that 's why I think sometimes institutional living can be a huge plus for people rather than isolating in their home, which of course. How many people are on the table, you know, want to live in their home when they're older, and how many people want to live in an institution? You know, we, you know, put up our hand and say, oh, I don't want to live in an institution. But, boy, I have seen people really perk up when they get into the social environment, Mm -hmm. particularly when they've had friends, neighbors, family who have drifted apart for various reasons, and they're sort of the last man standing. So you certainly see that phenomenon. Now I've also seen people who do not do well in institutional living no matter what, but there are some people who actually move, make the transition, which is often quite rocky, and then really improve.
0: And just um, an interesting sort of thing, I read recently that the clock test Mm -hmm. is time limited for. Um, how long we'll be able to use that, because the younger generations I have know. never seen a clock. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know. I <laughs> So there's going to be, at some point, where we can no longer use that as a test. I know. Yeah. I, know. <laughs> I know. That's so sad. I know it's good, I know it's good through my years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I saw That's a drama. clock. Radio. They also don't understand Screen. a lot, there's a whole generation that can't grasp the concepts of clockwise and counterclockwise, I because that's not right. their construct of
1: time. Right. Well, they're not even teaching um, regular writing. I mean, they're just right. teaching clock writing now because yeah. everybody's going to type. So, yeah. So this is very generational. But it's interesting because <laughs> there's a whole science around interpreting clock drawings, which is amazing. Yeah. And if you've ever seen somebody with a disordered clock drawing, it's unbelievable. So we have seen patients where they drew the clock and all the numbers were on one side and the other side was totally blank. I mean, there's all sorts of cognitive and brain reasons for screwing up the clock drive. Right? So pretty <laughs> amazing. Any other questions? Mm-hmm. We, we do a lot of work with folks who have Alzheimer's and dementia and their caregivers. We have support patients in
0: uh, the respite program. And one of the things that we talk to caregivers is that all of a sudden they start seeing behavior that with their folks who have Alzheimer's or dementia that is totally abnormal for them give them what we call the three P's. P, pain, or poop. So they've got a urinary infection, they're constipated, or they've got pain. Right. And they they remember the three P's, and it works very well for them to be able able to say okay.
1: Because the worry we have is that people with dementia are prone to delirium. And if you have delirium on top of dementia, your dementia may, once the delirium is better, the dementia may have progressed to a lower level. You may have now affected your brain with that delirium, and you may now be at a lower functional status or cognitive status than you were before. And sometimes it's the delirium that kicks the person into a higher level of institutional or living than um, before. So it's huge, so preventing, jumping on it fast. And we're very bad in the hospital at just assuming somebody with dementia, oh, it's just their dementia, and not realizing this is a change, because we don't know them. So we really do need to talk to the people who know them about, is this normal for this person or not? And any sudden change needs to be worked up. Sometimes it is the decline in their dementia, but until you've proven otherwise, best be looking for something that is treatable. Yeah, very good point. And sometimes they're simple. Constipation, dehydration, and going to the toilet is huge. And pain. Well, thank you and good thank luck. You. How many of you are thinking of taking the exam? Excellent, excellent. Good luck, good luck. Thank you. But hopefully that chart at the end will be a good reminder to just skim over about the, those are the important distinctions. Comparisons um, among the three disorders of delirium, dementia, and depression. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.